The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Putin has made it very clear that he wants to reunite the Soviet Union and that he is not ethically constrained. There is no such thing as risk-free sanctions, but our risk tolerance has to rise in the face of an actual land war in Europe. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. There's the size that the economy is not super robust. Pennsylvania has thousands of structurally deficient bridges. The need has been pronounced for a while, and Joe Biden got it done. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Well, so much for de-escalating. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as we balance developing stories on both sides of the globe, with Russia continuing to increase troop levels along the Ukrainian border, according to the State Department and NATO. And President Biden talking with the Chancellor of Germany today from the White House. We'll have the latest for you on this and get the view of Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur, a Democrat from Ohio who is also a member of the Congressional Ukrainian Caucus. And as the CDC prepares to update COVID guidance, Dr. Fauci sees light at the end of the tunnel. But many states are, of course, well ahead of the federal government. We're going to talk about this all with Katrine Wallace, an epidemiologist and professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The signature panel's in place. They're up first, in fact. We'll talk in a moment with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. It was at this time yesterday. Were you with us on Sound On? All the talk was of de-escalation. A pullback was underway, according to Vladimir Putin. It does not seem to be happening. Quite the opposite, in fact, as we hear from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. What we're seeing on the border remains deeply, deeply concerning. He talked about it today on ABC's Good Morning America. Unfortunately, there's a difference between Russia says and what it does. Uh, and what we're seeing is no uh, meaningful pullback. On the contrary, we continue to see forces, especially forces that would be in the vanguard of any uh, renewed aggression against Ukraine, continuing uh, to, uh, to be at the border, uh, to mass at the border. Similar doubts from NATO. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg suggests a new normal in which Europe is under a constant security crisis. The new normal is that uh, Russia has demonstrated that uh, it really is willing to contest some of the fundamental principles for our security. The right for every nation to choose its own path. But Russia is telling a very different story. Cue the trains. Russia says, no, we're pulling back forces. They even released this video. You're hearing sound from official video from Russia's defense ministry showing a train loaded with tanks and armored vehicles leaving Crimea at high speed. Of course, that could have been taken at any time, right? All the while here in Washington, President Biden today meeting with the chancellor of Germany by phone. Another round with Olaf Scholz as diplomacy continues on both sides of the Atlantic. Has anything changed? This is where we begin with our panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Jeannie, is Russia just lying now? 
Well, I think we are exactly where we keep saying we have been, which is they're saying one thing and doing another. When you have, you know, 150,000 plus troops on the border, regardless of whether you show on television trains going back and forth to anywhere, it doesn't matter. Let's not forget what's also on RT, Russian television, is about 24-7 cries that Ukraine is the aggressor, that they are prepared to attack Russia, and Russia is going to have to respond. This is what they are broadcasting over there. So I don't think we can listen to what they're saying. We have to watch what they're doing Mm -hmm. and respond accordingly. And I think the Biden administration and NATO are on the right path on that. It's not a good sign one way or the other. Rick, uh, welcome back. The the president yesterday did speak to uh, the situation in Ukraine and with Russia. He was highly skeptical. Sounds like that was the right move. Yeah, I think that Biden has actually played cards better than Vladimir Putin uh, in the last month. And that's really saying something because I think odds on money was Putin was going to run circles around uh, President Biden. So kudos to the president. He's got him uh, pinned down at least to the point where nobody believes anything he says anymore. It's exactly what Jeannie was saying the other day. You know, watch what he does. Don't listen to what he says. Uh, and, and then he responds by saying, don't believe your lying eyes. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> listen to me. Yeah. Um, the good news is, look, the intelligence community uh, is supplying uh, ready information to the president. The president's breaking all kinds of traditions uh, by taking that intelligence and putting it out in the public domain. Uh, and, and that seems to be uh, uh, confusing, if not downright stalling, uh, Vladimir Putin from, uh, from executing his task. And so... Where do we go from here then, uh, Jeannie? The group of seven foreign ministers are going to meet in person Saturday in Munich. Can this just go on like this indefinitely? Well, you know, it can. And I think that is part of what we are learning here is that it can go on. It, and it has gone on since 2014. And I, you know, we listen to what the Ukrainians are saying. This is nothing new. You're mm-hmm. getting more troops at the border, but they have been at this with Russia since 2014. And I do want to give President Biden credit for his statements yesterday, not just to the American public, but to the Russian people, because I think that's critically important, whether that message gets through or not. It was 1130 at night in Russia when he was speaking, and Lord only knows what they'll put on their own television. But hopefully that message gets through to the Russian people and to the American people in terms of a rationale for why this is so important to the United States and the West that we take this seriously, at least more seriously than we did in 2014. Well, realizing that Russia has been causing trouble since 2014, I guess you could say even before that, Rick, this this state of readiness Uh, as we've already discussed, is at a high level. We're talking about as many as 150,000 troops now. We're spending an enormous amount of money keeping them there. How long can this particular scenario we're in now uh, go on? I mean, are are those tanks going to be parked right where they are now when the president delivers the State of the Union? No, Joe, I think you've picked a very important issue. Readiness does go down the longer you're deployed. That's just a fact of life in the military. And and it it gets more and more expensive uh, the longer you're deployed. And so uh, there's no question that Vladimir Putin's running some risks uh, to get down to the point where uh, this really starts to show up on his balance sheet. It's expensive to keep mm. 150,000 troops in a battle-ready position, and they will digre- dig- digress in their ability to be top-form combat troops the longer yeah. they stand out there in the snow. Boy, uh, Jeannie, the new normal uh, really stuck out to me from uh, Stoltenberg, uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Is that is that what we're learning here? That that you know, it's like you need to learn how to live with COVID. Well, are we going to learn to live with Russia just kind of being an aggressor, freaking everyone out in Europe indefinitely? 
We could. And, and I think that, you know, part of that is going to be these cyber attacks that we have seen for several years now, but just in the yeah. last 24, 48 hours. And they are hitting key areas of the Ukrainian government, both yeah. the public sector and, and the banking sector. So and that's those even will worse. likely continue. Doesn't it's this then worse. reinforce Rick's argument that we hit them right now with sanctions? What are we waiting for if we're saying, okay, well, it looks like they're not going to invade, but they're going to be a real problem. This is our new normal that there's a security crisis in Europe. It, it does support that. But of course, we're talking about the old 50-50 Senate and they can't even pass yeah. a budget, which well, we no, haven't talked about yet. So we, you know, whether they get sanctions passed, I mean, you know, they say they're close and, and yet they seem very, very far. And, and you know, just to go back for a minute, Russia can keep those troops there for a while. When you produce 10 to 11 million barrels of oil a day without sanctions, you can probably keep your troops parked on that border for some time and that is a big challenge for us since 2014 putin has been ensuring his ability to do just what he's doing today what do you is there a tone of resignation here though rick when you hear the the secretary general at nato say quote i regret to say this is the new normal in europe unquote then what are we doing no i think it 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 it, it indicates a weakness in our policy toward russia and other uh, authoritarian regimes in the region, right? We've been coddling these people. We've been doing business with these people. We've been allowing them to suppress their own people, to actually uh, uh, kill in the streets their own people. And these used to be fighting words to us, right? Mm. The, the human rights used to matter to us. We used to build it into our policy. And so I think this is going to start happening now. And, and maybe this is good. Maybe, maybe by Vladimir Putin's intransigence on the border, it unifies Europe. It focuses yeah. the attention on these these authoritarians, and it starts to hold them accountable for these actions, including the things that Jeannie was just talking about, like cyber attacks. Jeannie, you hear Republican lawmakers on this program very frequently blame Joe Biden for getting us to this point. Uh, Senator Bill Haggerty was the lawmaker last evening, where they point to his energy policy and his lack of cracking down on Nord Stream 2 as the two big enablers that that filled Vladimir Putin's pockets and 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 his in, inflated his ego. Is there an argument there? What would you tell them in response? Are they wrong? Well, you know, and, and we heard Haggerty say yesterday also the Afghanistan withdrawal as boggled right. as that was or bungled as that was. And, you know, if they assumed that that was who Joe Biden was and they could just waltz into Ukraine, I think Joe Biden has proven in the last few weeks, if not months, that that is not the case. So, yes, he can revisit key aspects of his energy policy. Sure. The bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan was a problem. You know, I would also just raise what I think is a critical challenge for the United States that Joe Biden has got to address, which is how spread can we be across the world? If we are going to be in an indefinite challenge with Russia in Ukraine and China chooses to do any action in terms of Taiwan or elsewhere, mm -hmm. how far spread can the United States be? It's critically important that we have allied support, which is something he has been building up. But there comes a point of, of you know, a return where we just simply yeah. don't have the capacity. And that's something he's going to have to address. What do you think, uh, Rick Davis? Did Joe Biden invite or enable this type of behavior with his own policies? Look, I mean, you know, we, we just came through four years of Donald Trump enabling yeah. Vladimir Putin in virtually every capacity. Oh, he ought to be a part of the G7. Let's make it G8. <laughs> the guy's a hilarious guy at dinner. 
Um, I mean, really? I mean, like, you know, we got Haggerty, a Republican, you know, attacking the policies of the Biden administration when, when it comes to Russia, four years of Vladimir Putin suck ups to Donald mm -hmm. Trump. So, look, I, what we need is a continuous policy over time. Right. Yeah. American presidents need to have some kind of continuity in their foreign policy, national security, especially when it comes to aggressors like Vladimir Putin. Rick and Jeannie are with us. Signature panel for the hour. Next, we're joined by Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur, Democrat from Ohio, a member of the Congressional Ukrainian Caucus and a friend of President Zelensky. We'll get her view, having emerged from an important hearing, a briefing on this yesterday. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The headline on the terminal, NATO says Europe security crisis is new normal. You heard Jens Stoltenberg earlier this hour, the secretary general telling reporters as much this morning in Brussels, says the situation in Ukraine shows this is the new normal in Europe, even as Russia claims to be de-escalating. Let's talk about all of this with Representative Marcy Kaptur, Democrat from Ohio's 9th Congressional District that stretches from Toledo to Cleveland. And the Congresswoman is a member of the Ukrainian caucus, as you might remember from our previous conversation, as well, the longest serving woman in the history of Congress. Representative Kaptur, thank you for being back with us. Do you believe anything you're hearing from Moscow right now? Is Ukraine still under the same threat level as it was before we heard talk of de-escalation? I believe it is under the same threat level and even greater with the largest cyber attack ever experienced in Ukrainian history happening yesterday and the day before. How much damage did that attack do? Well, you know, it's constant uh, interference by Russia, both with arms and with the disruption of normal life. And the people of Ukraine are very enduring people. But the uh, Russians try, it's like drip, drip, drip. Yeah. It's like a form of torture. They can never have a normal life. It interrupts the lines. Uh, the canceling of flights from abroad was a very uh, was received with great trepidation uh, by the people of Ukraine. They are stalwart people. They have been through so much. No nation suffered more during uh, the last century than did that region of the world. So um, what Stalin did to the uh, people uh, that were under the communist dictatorship, most of the West doesn't even know about. Yeah. Uh, it was horrendous. And this is merely a continuation of that kind of bullying and uh, uh, murderous behavior by the uh, government of Russia right now. So the, the people of Ukraine are enduring, they are strong, and they will fight. But they are outgunned because they don't have the weaponry of yeah. Russia. And How uh, is that so cyber attack not an act of war, Congresswoman? Should that not be treated as an act of war, as a provocation that might trigger sanctions or, or maybe a reciprocal attack? I think the United States and our allies should place severe sanctions additionally on the Russian oligarchy. Huh. And uh, we should do everything possible to um, uh, make Nord Stream 2 uh, non-functional. 
um, and to bolster Ukraine's defenses in order to preserve her sovereignty, which she so deserves. And, uh, but the situation is increasingly volatile. And just like in the United States, where some supply lines have been interrupted simply because of the pandemic, uh, can you imagine the pandemic without the medical facilities that we have, yeah. plus the interference by Russia? It's made life in Ukraine much more difficult. Terribly isolating, and it sounds dangerous. Congresswoman, I know you hosted an important briefing yesterday, a virtual briefing with a bipartisan group of House members. Uh, more than 40 House offices, I understand, were involved, and it also included the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. How concerned are you at this point of, a, of an endless standoff here? When we talk about a new normal, can this standoff go on indefinitely? And what is the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. asking for? Well, first of all, uh, she conducts herself with utter poise. Um, John Kennedy defined courage as grace under pressure. She has that. She has that. What what a, an astounding ambassador she is. Mm. Every American should get to know Ambassador Makarova of Ukraine. Um, I think that, uh, frankly, Ukraine is looking for additional um, weapons to uh, defend themselves against uh, the Russian onslaught. Uh, they are looking for assistance in terms of technology. Um, they are very worried about the uh, increased Russian mobilization yeah. uh, in, in three regions that could they could invade from any region right um, across the Ukraine border. And uh, they are looking for um, uh, reassurance uh, from our allies in Europe under NATO, for example, that um, military uh, instruction will not be uh, completely uh, absent from the country. They're asking for more help from the media. They're asking for more voices of freedom. uh, Understood. Why aren't they getting the weapons that they need? Are are we not providing certain elements they're asking for? They are receiving weapons, but the West has been very careful in not providing the kinds of weapons that would exact a further Russian retaliation to provide Ukraine with um, uh, javelins, for example, and stingers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other weapons that are even more uh, lethal, and she is asking for those. Ukraine is asking for those. So in a sense, what Russia is doing is militarizing the region much more than it was before. If they keep adding to their troop presence there, uh, Congresswoman, what's the end game for Vladimir Putin if it's not invasion? That's a good question. I guess you'd have to ask him, but I think it's definitely intimidation and uh, flexing his muscles to other nations that are much smaller, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, uh, of course, nations he's already uh, invaded, Armenia, Moldova, Georgia, uh, it's it's to throw his weight around in a way and to take command of the Black Sea, which is very important uh, to Turkey and to yeah. other nations in the region, and to push to the Baltic, to push to the Baltic Sea. And uh, this is deeply worrisome to our allies in NATO. In Europe. Yeah, there's your new normal, I guess. Uh, you know, you're a bit of an outlier. If I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, Congresswoman, as a Democrat, uh, to, to favor sanctions now. That seems to have been one of the biggest sticking points that that kind of blew up negotiations over a sanctions bill in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Do you believe Vladimir Putin does deserve sanctions now? And I I guess, is there anything Congress can do at this point? 
Well, I think the point about the cyber attack being a form of significant warfare is extremely important, and I don't think that it should just be left on the table. I think that we have to place severe sanctions on the Russian oligarchy. I leave it up to the administration, um, not knowing every negotiation that's going on by every leader that's involved in the European countries. You know, we're not necessarily privy to that in the Congress. So I think that there's a very careful diplomatic balance being worked here. We have to respect it, but we in the Congress have always led uh, the defense of Ukraine. When are you going back to Ukraine, Congresswoman? Is the presence of American officials important there at this time, or is it too dangerous? Very important, and we were invited by the Parliament, and once President Biden leaves my district, my first phone call is going to be to the State Department to find out, well, what are the portals in? That's right. You're preparing for a presidential visit, aren't you? Yes, and uh, here in Ohio, the president will be coming uh, to northern Ohio, to Lorraine, Ohio, the home of the uh, admiral of the U.S. Navy during World War II, Ernest King, the (laughs) home of Toni Morrison, the great poet, uh, poet laureate, and also uh, uh, Helen Helen Steiner Rice, a great American uh, writer. So uh, we're very honored (laughs) uh, that he is coming to this great community. Where's Tom Keene when we need him? Uh, Congresswoman, (laughs) I know that you serve on appropriations. I'd like to ask you about uh, the likelihood of a budget getting done here. Even the continuing resolution was held up this week over something involving crack pipes. Uh, We saw Senator Blackburn and now Senator Rubio holding it up. Uh, because of these uh, these smoking safe smoking kits that the administration was going to pay for and provide to those in need. Apparently, they do not include crack pipes, but our government funding is being held up because of it. Yes, and there are many other controversies. As an appropriator, I can assure you there are many other uh, what we call anomalies and uh, riders that uh, some people are objecting to. The base bills are fundamentally done. Uh, I just learned today about a provision I care very much about that may be at risk. So we are in the final moments of trying to clear our bills. Yeah. And uh, no one's talking about a shutdown, though, right? You think this will be done by Friday? Um, I can tell you, oh, I boy. tried to reach our chair, Deloro of Connecticut, just now, and it was yeah. impossible. She was on the phone with others, so believe me, they're working very hard to get it done for the yeah. sake of the country. She didn't take my call today either, Congresswoman. <laughs> Uh, that means, by the way, if this gets done, do you have a budget in place by March 11th? Uh, well, hopefully we'll receive the president's budget. Uh, I know they've been working on that. Do you mean a budget for 2023 or 2022? No, I mean an omnibus for, for, the, for the current fiscal year, as bizarre as that might be here in the month of February. Right. I, that is the goal everyone is working toward, yeah. yes. Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur from Ohio, we appreciate you being with us. Thanks for the insights today, and thanks for coming back to talk to us on Bloomberg Sound On. Panel's still here, uh, Rick and Jeannie. I'm not sure if we learned a lot about the standoff with Ukraine, but it really brings you inside the debate around sanctions, uh, Jeannie. When you hear Marcy Kaptur expressing as a Democrat disappointment like that, she'd like to see sanctions now. She would. And, 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 you know, the longest serving woman in Congress, you got to give it up to Representative Kaptur. And she, she she really does uh, make a claim about sanctions that we haven't heard from many Democrats. And of course, the White House has been reluctant to 
push for sanctions prior to an incursion or invasion into Ukraine, and they remain stuck at that. But maybe this round of cyber attacks, you know, when she underscores how devastating and disruptive they are, she made a really good point about issues like canceling of flights, the impact on their way of life, the economy yeah, the and other things, Absolutely. the isolation, that this may be the sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back and we may see some movement towards sanctions, but we yeah. haven't heard that signal from the White House. Rick, we heard from, again, with Senator Mark Warner, who who spoke with Bloomberg on Monday, was out doing other media today and, and brought up Article 5 again as a, as a possibility if a major cyber attack hit Ukraine and it, and it, you know, cyber attacks, as he says, don't know borders, let's say it, it knocks the lights out and, and impacts business, commerce and government in Poland, for instance, how how obligated would we be to respond? Well, first of all, uh, uh, we would respond in defense of those uh, countries that have Article five, uh, the NATO countries. And so we would do everything we can to use our technology uh, to uh, both recover and defend in a cyber attack. Uh, I, I think NATO has the same attitude that the Congresswoman has, which is a cyber attack is an attack. Yeah. Um, it's just a different form of attack. And so uh, that's one thing. But two, I mean, we have to assume that the same thing can happen here, right? I mean, Absolutely. Uh, there's an interesting thing called Shields Up, which is a warning the government puts out to the cyber community uh, when they think that there could be an imminent international threat. And, and shields are up. Uh, and this is not Star Trek. This is real life. And so, uh, so I think it's one of these things that, uh, you know, when you talked about new normal, Joe, uh, this has been the new normal. Uh, Russia's been attacking their neighbors, uh, NATO uh, countries, for some time. The Baltics have been under severe cyber attacks for a long time. So I think now may be the time that the rest of the world starts to focus on their bad behavior and their malign influences and say, now's the time to stop. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano with us here, our panel on the Wednesday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. We're wondering if the federal government is about to catch up with the states. Unless it's the other way around. As I read the headline on the terminal, states break ranks on COVID rules despite scientific doubt. We've talked about this. As Madison Muller asks, two years into a global pandemic, states and cities are struggling to answer a critical question. How do you know when to return to normal life? A lot of people are not waiting to find out, as we've told you. States with some of the most stringent mask rules, New York, California, Connecticut, pulling back mandates. Today, Anthony Fauci seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And Rochelle Walensky says, yes, new guidance is being crafted as we speak. We are assessing the most important factors based on where we are in the pandemic, and we'll soon put guidance in place that is relevant and encourages prevention measures when they are most needed to protect public health and our hospitals. Joining us to talk about it, Katrine Wallace, epidemiologist and adjunct assistant professor, University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health. Katrine, it's great to have you with us. I appreciate your time. Are the states... On the right side of history here, is the federal government going to kind of go along with what's happening on a more local level? So one thing that we need to understand and that I don't think has been well communicated during this pandemic is that risk of COVID-19 is local. And so guidance really should be brought forth by transmission and risk of infection, which Mm -hmm. is really not a national phenomenon. It really is a local phenomenon. 
well, that's kind of where we are then, right? Is the federal government about to get out of the business of of providing guidance? This is going to come down to state governments and counties. So I think that the the government does serve an important purpose. And I think that having guardrails in place to know when to move up and down in our mitigations in terms of, you know, when we mitigations for a pandemic is really on a continuum. The more transmission and the more risk, the more layers of mitigation we need. And the federal government could do a, the all the health departments in the country a great service by putting something in place that helps them to know when is a good time to move up and down in the mitigation. Even here in D.C., where I am sitting right now, the District of Columbia, we're going to have our indoor mask mandate come down. It appears the 28th of February. As an epidemiologist, we're talking D.C., New York, you know, some of the major cities uh, that are dealing with this. Does this make you nervous? I think that we are seeing positive trends in the data. And I actually looked at D.C.'s data yesterday because somebody else asked me this question. And it actually looks pretty good in D.C. right now. I think that people need to remember that you can people can always still wear masks, even if it's not a mandate. It's sure. not, you know, just because somebody says you don't have to doesn't mean you shouldn't. But um, I think that if as long as when mandates are put into place or taken out of practice, I think it's important to make sure that these are done systematically and backed mm-hmm. with public health science and not arbitrarily. The point, though, is, as, as our story uh, references today, there are no clear data points for exactly when it's appropriate to take off a mask. I mean, we are dealing with some gray area here. And that's where I think the CDC could really do an important service for everybody if they put something like that into place, a guidance that everyone can follow. For example, in Chicago, we do have guardrails like that, which inform mitigation practices, and it works really well. There's different indicators that are watched. And if they stay in a low transmission, um, they stay in the low transmission category for more than two weeks, we know it's okay to move down and and so forth. So it it actually is backed in public health science. And by the time you move from one mitigation level to to the next, you know that it's you know, you've been watching the data and following the science to do There's so. There's a great fear, Katrine, that you take these mandates away and then the next variant shows up. How do you get people back in the habit once you've told them it's safe to go back in the water? Yes, and that's where I think, going back to what I was saying at the beginning, is that we haven't done a great job of explaining that, you know, risk is local and this is all on a continuum. So we, that's why the CDC, if they do put out some kind of guidance telling people that these are the measures that we, that we follow them either way, right? If we have the guardrails in place, we can follow them to take them away and also to bring them back as transmission and risk also increase. Katrine Wallace, epidemiologist, adjunct assistant professor, University of Illinois, Chicago School of Public Health. We thank you for bringing your expertise to the conversation today. Here on Bloomberg Sound On, I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Glad you're with us. We're going to reassemble the panel coming up here as we get their take on this. You might have heard today, Virginia, the new governor, Glenn Youngkin, who ran on dropping these mandates, signed a law requiring public schools to make masks optional. We'll talk about that and the budgeting process held up by crack pipes. Do you hear the congresswoman talk about this? This is a real conversation. Among grown-ups in Washington right now, we'll play it against the panel. Rick and Jeannie are back after we check traffic and markets for you on Bloomberg. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The politics of COVID. Virginia's new governor, Glenn Youngkin, today signed a law requiring public schools to make masks optional by the beginning of March. This is about empowering parents, and we're doing it across the Commonwealth. The great thing is if your child uh, should, if you choose your child shouldn't wear a mask, you can make that decision. And if you want your child to wear a mask, you can make that decision as well, and that's what Virginia is all about. Well, it's thought Virginia was for lovers. The legislation passed on a largely party-line vote. 19 Republicans, three Democrats, replacing Youngkin's executive order that he put in place on day one that essentially did the same thing, making good on a campaign promise. It's partly why he won. But that executive order was being challenged in a series of lawsuits. Now it's the law. Let's reassemble the panel with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us for the hour. Good politics here uh, for Glenn Youngkin, Rick. Uh, As I mentioned, it helped him become the governor of Virginia. Will more states follow? Yeah, I think more states will follow. I think we're seeing a a confluence of people who are relaxing about uh, the COVID restrictions uh, all across the political spectrum, Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, the, the real question is, is there any reason uh, for the uh, CDC, the, 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 the federal government, to intercede in this behavior, right? Why not let the states do what they think is right for their communities? What do you think, Jeannie? Is it good politics? It's not just Republican governors who are doing this. As we've discussed, it's many Democratic states along uh, in the Northeast, along the Eastern Seaboard, even here in Washington. Before the end of this month, the indoor mask mandate will be lifted. I realize we're talking schools here in Virginia. But based on our conversation with the epidemiologist, is it time for the feds to catch up to the states? They sounded today like they may start to catch up with the states, but just to play devil's advocate here with the understanding I am tired of wearing a mask, let us just say that (laughs) when we're talking schools, we're talking a majority of kids who are unvaccinated, they remain vulnerable. You know, numbers are way down, but still 140,000 a day. That's down from a million. That's great. But at the peak of Delta in September, we were at 140,000 a day and nobody talked like this. So I do think the CDC has a right to be following the science and you know on the politics of it that said on on the science of on the politics of it Yunkin is absolutely right and let's just look at what happened in San Francisco with the ouster of these three members of the Board of Education yesterday suggesting that parents you know turnout certainly was probably not as high as it might be in other elections but you know 60 70 percent of people turning out in that vote ousted these Board of Education members not necessarily over vaccine mandates or masking but because they didn't feel the board was acting responsibly. So, you know, I do think this is smart politics, but on the science of it, I do think there's reason for scientists to be skeptical. Our producer, Christine, points out Coachella, the music festival, plans to return with no masks or vaccines required. I read today, Disney? Disney's dropping the mask mandate? The reopening story, Rick, is real. 
If it's good for Mickey, it's good for Rick. Well, okay, see, there you go. I mean, that's kind of a bellwether, though, isn't it? It's like when we heard the NBA was shutting down going into COVID. When you hear Disney is taking the mask off, does that mean we're back? Yeah, I think, look, I mean, I think we're entering into a period of time where a, uh, a society norm has to be achieved in order to create balance between uh, where we are with the science and where we are, you know, with getting on with work and, and, and life. And so I, I do think guidance from the CDC is important. Uh, but like we've just gone through two years of following explicit rules associated with the CDC. And, and arguably uh, it got us to where we are today, which is uh, the third year of a pandemic in our country. And yeah. so is it an endemic now? And are we going to treat it as such? And I think that's what you're seeing is a confluence where the politics no longer divides us. What divides us is really, um, you know, our anxiety to get back to work and, and, and start shedding some of the uh, limitations we've had due to COVID. All right. We're going to switch gears here to something that you might not believe unless you've been following this. As I, I mean, the, the headlines you find on this terminal, Ajax France press imagine what they're saying overseas debate over crack pipes holding up funding of u.s federal government republicans in the senate threatening to block government funding this is the continuing resolution government set to run out of money this weekend after accusing the biden administration of planning to use some of this money for an unusual budget item to buy and provide crack pipes this all started last week a conservative media outlet published an article it was not a government document saying that the U.S. had allocated $30 million to buy pipes for people to use to smoke crack. What 1980s movie are we in right now? Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee, jumps on it. This is from the Senate floor last week, one week ago exactly. Just yesterday, I had to send a letter to Health and Human Services demanding to know why taxpayer dollars are funding fresh crack pipes for drug addicts. This is real. That's right. I don't... An HHS spokesman has confirmed that the agency is pushing a grant program that would fund so-called smoking kits. That's correct. With pipes for users to smoke crystal meth, crack cocaine, and I quote, any illicit substances. The kits are real. But apparently, according to the White House, as well as the Department of Health and Human Services, there are no pipes inside of the kits. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki later that day. One of Senator Blackburn's primary concerns is about uh, a relation to the set to the funding of crack pipes. Is this correct? Which mm-hmm. is not an issue. Well, uh, Senator Blackburn dropped the hold. Another senator, Marco Rubio, has added his own and came out with a Twitter video. This is four days ago, long after the White House and HHS denied this. The Biden administration is going to be sending crack pipes and meth pipes targeting minority communities in this country, underserved communities. I know that sounds insane. I know that sounds too crazy to be true. They confirmed it yesterday. They're going to, they call them smoking kits and they say it's about equity, but they have in essence confirmed that they're going to be mailing and sending pipes that can be used to smoke crack and meth. In essence, they did not confirm that. They said that's actually wrong. It came up again in the White House brief. Can you clarify for us, were they never a part of the kit or were they removed in response to this reporting and this pushback? They were never a part of the kit. It was inaccurate reporting and we wanted to put out information to make that clear. Pretty straightforward from Jen Psaki. All this talk of pipes, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm from Boston. I can only think of one song. The pipes, the pipes are calling. But what are we talking about here? 
This is government funding that's being held up. And after we discussed this with Marcy Kaptur a little bit earlier in the hour, she's not sure it's going to get done. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shenzano are still with us. Rick, um, is this real? Sure. What's real is people grandstanding in Congress. I mean, yeah. it's shocking. And, uh, but and you look, don't see a, a government shutdown coming or anything of the no, like? No, I think people are taking advantage of the fact that everyone's watching government shutdown. And, and so they've got 72 hours to make a, a big deal about this. And, and you know, who, who can blame Marco Rubio for following up on Marsha Blackburn's coattails? Uh, and, and, and look, I mean, it, it is a ridiculous thing. Uh, it, they get a lot of credit for looking like they're defending minority communities in their state, even though they're really not defending minority communities. I would say the um, the notion of putting into the line item a something called safe smoking kits yeah. uh, might not have been the best word you're, usage. You're begging for this, right? You're kind of begging for this, <laughs> and and you got what you got. My 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 guess is people will now calm down, and uh, you'll have a Friday vote on this CR, and uh, people will leave town thinking. What a strange week we had in Washington. <laughs> well, wouldn't be the first time we thought that, Jeannie, but what are they getting out of this? Is there this good politics, even though it's been it's been made clear that this is not true? It has been made clear. It sounds like a headline straight out of the onion when you say the entire budget being held up for crack pipes. And, you know, God bless Marco Rubio when you're running for reelection. This is what you do. And, you know, it shouldn't be lost on us that Rubio and Joe Manchin introduced a bill called the Pipes Act, preventing illicit paraphernalia for exchange systems. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I agree with Rick. This is not going to hold up too much. It is going to be, you know, something they use for as long as they can for election purposes. Um, and, you know, we will get a resolution, but let's not forget, we are getting a continuing resolution to keep the government open for a, a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. We are not getting the budget we needed. And, you know, you hear people like Patrick Leahy and others who have been in Congress a long time throwing up their hands saying, I've never seen anything like this when I first came. And yet here we are today and people interested in, you know, uh, going on about their electoral business instead of the business of the country. Wow. Uh, In terms of the broader budget, though, the omnibus, you've been pretty optimistic about this uh, for a couple of weeks here, Rick. Do they get this done by March 11th? It would actually be an accomplishment. Yeah, I think they will. I mean, they've got uh, the numbers now on the top line figured out. They're doing all the allocations by committee. The committee will then, you know, put the money into the the, the measurements that they use for different programs. So it, 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 the hard part's done, uh, getting the sort of agreement between parties on spending. Uh, I would say I'm a little surprised this administration hasn't pushed harder on Congress to get this done before the president's planned State of the Union on March 1st. Yeah, um, right. uh, That would be an accomplishment that he would want to talk about in the, in the State of the Union. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, our signature panel with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks to both of you, as always, for the insights. February's Black History Month. Every day this month, we're celebrating significant moments in U.S. Black history. Now with your installment for this Wednesday, it is the 16th of February. I've been looking forward to hearing from Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in black history in 1951, the New York City Council passes a bill prohibiting discrimination against African-Americans in city-assisted housing. The bill was mainly directed at the Stuyvesant Town Housing Project, at the time a public-private partnership project. Managers of that development prohibited black tenants who had been active in the campaign to stop racial discrimination. Lawsuits were filed claiming that the project was public or semi-public and thus violated anti-discrimination laws for New 
York City public housing, which were rarely enforced. One month later, the Brown-Isaacs bill became law in New York City. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Thanks, Renita. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.